0: Hello and welcome to the Radio Check Podcast, life in the concert touring industry, where we'll be speaking with and interviewing the best talent in the business, taking not only a deep dive into what it takes to put on a world-class show, but also life on the road and sharing experiences that span the globe, highlighting the people that are responsible for making your favorite artists look and sound great. My name is Matt Kanzie, and your host on this podcast is Chris Kanzee, a 40-year veteran in the live music touring industry. Over the years, Chris has traveled the globe several times over and has escalated through the ranks, bringing him to the top of his profession. He has established hundreds, if not thousands, of connections with other industry professionals, artists, and musicians. This podcast is your backstage pass to what happens behind the scenes and on the road when traveling and working with some of the world's top musicians. So sit back and enjoy. Brother Chris, so fantastic to see you again today. How's it going? Yeah, man?
1: I'm good. I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing okay. Yeah. So it was a beautiful weekend, good weather. So it's uh, nice to kind of, uh, be, this being a Sunday evening, it's kind of nice to finish it off to, you know, spend some time, uh,
1: having a chat. So. Yeah, it is. It is nice. I've been, uh, you know, having some good weather here in new Orleans. Uh, we had a tropical storm come through a few days ago. I think maybe the last time we spoke, it was a tropical storm happening, but, uh, it's all gone. It's been sunny and warm and, and, and dry the last few days. Uh, it's been, it's been, it's been nice.
0: Yeah. Excellent. But,
1: uh, I, I, you know, before we went, you know, we went on air here we were talking about, uh, need of a haircut and of course we can look at each other and we both look like you know puppies that have been left out in the rain you know (laughs) scruffy around the edges my 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 bangs haven't you know been in my been in my eyes in a long time
0: yeah it's funny i do a lot of these things on webinars and uh people who've just basically had it and you know get out the flowbie and you know cut their own hair and it shaves down to you know
1: I I was tempted to because you know we have a pair of clippers in the house and I then I looked at them for a second and I thought to myself you know I've never done that before but I do know I've got a very odd shaped head you know it's more square than round if you know what I mean okay <laughs> so I don't think I want to accentuate the uh, you know the hard edges I have on my on my, my I've skull never... so.
0: I've never gotten it down that low to figure that part out to see what my shape of the head is. So, but just, just for reference for people listening, it's of course, we're in, you know, this pandemic situation. So if somebody's listening to this five years down the road, they're like, what the hell they're talking about? Cutting their own hair. There's a haircut now all under a pandemic, you know, you kind of get stuck in the house and none of that stuff's happening right now. So we're all getting a little uh, shaggy headed. So Yeah. But, uh, well, the,
1: the, the phase two is, uh, is, has happened here. The reopening phase two of New Orleans is, is happening. So where I do get my haircut is, is open for business. And, uh, um, I don't, uh, know when I'm going to make it there. I'm hmm. still kind of, uh, wanting to stay in and just be, you know, to kind of play it safe and not go crazy, not overdo it just yet. There's uh, no real
0: point. No, no reason to take
1: any risks. So, yeah, you know, I go to the grocery store, I go to Lowe's and, you know, we have everything we need, you know, I mean, uh, you know, if, if we want it, we get it, you know, and Amazon has been a big help and, but, uh, yeah. yeah
0: you know, I hear you. Yeah, so you've been time. rocking out some projects around the house and, uh, kind of doing the whole beautification that you live in a, a beautiful old home in New Orleans. How old is your house? when was that originally Uh, you know
1: what it's 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 you know joy my wife joy who's been doing research on this house and and you know the paperwork when we bought it you know the deed or you know however you want to refer to it you know says it's uh, um, late 1850s but you know we've starting to find things where um, it's uh, we've seen some signs of it even being older you know so Wow. I kind of say 1850s, early 1850s. So, wow. You know. Yeah, it's so, pretty spectacular. Yeah, so, yeah. 150 years old, you know, that kind of thing. 170 years old.
0: And that might be a podcast on its own in the history of the house because I know it was uh, like a recording studio at one point and all kinds of crazy stuff was. Been
1: going on there. So, yeah, It was. It was. Uh, it was a motorcycle gang clubhouse for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, cut up into apartments. At one time. Um, it was uh there's a famous New Orleans chef, Frank Brightston. And uh Frank used to live here. And uh, he and I have met and discussed the house before. Uh wow. yeah, this the, this house has got history. It was it That's was cool. it was built by a by a ship captain, by a ship's captain called called John McLean, um in the 1850s. John McLean, not the guy from Die Hard. Not Bruce Willis, <laughs> right, right. Oh. But uh, yeah, the house has got a lot of history to it, and it's had a lot of different things happen to it. And you know, um, it's just interesting, you know, you know, mm. learning the history and looking at finding old pictures, and uh, you know,
0: well, the kind of work that you're putting into it. and of course, you know, being kind of now uh, beached from touring, um, you're doing a lot of great projects. That you know, you've always been one to restore and you know, put your own flair into it, but also, you know, taking care of that kind of stuff. Cause that kind of house definitely needs a lot of TLC. Oh, too much, too
1: much. You know, know, the odd part about it is I'm a modernist. Yeah, I would love modern house, whether it be a loft or, you know, just a slick newer, you know, smart house, that kind of thing. That's, Mm. you know, but uh, I keep ending up in old houses. This is my second one, you know, that I've Mm. redone. Yeah. We'll see. Life's long. Maybe I'll get my dream one of these days. One of these days. Maybe these an ultra modern, you know, convalescent home or something. <laughs> <laughs> not uh, quite yet though. Yeah. Not quite well, yet. I, I won't seeing. be able to I won't be able to look up to see the exposed ducts or anything like that because I'll be bent over and broken.
0: Yeah. Huh. Well, let's not get there yet. So Yeah. Well, you know, um, as probably, hopefully, you know, people that are going to be listening to this, they know that you are a fairly respected and long-term, you know, um, production manager in the concert touring industry. And, uh, I you know, I thought today we would kind of talk about, um, you know, your your role as a production manager and, you know, what you do and what it's like. And some influences, how you got your start and, you know, stuff like that. So uh, why don't you uh, kind of, uh, let's, let's, let's cover that today. I think that'd be a cool way to, uh, you know, kind of get people into this podcast is to kind of hear about, uh, you know, what it's like to be a production manager and, you know, what do you like about it and stuff like that. So.
1: Well, I mean, you know, being a production manager in 2020 and then being a production manager in 1988 when I, Got my first role as a production manager, are two completely different things. Mm. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, in the, uh, I was working for Joan Jett in the Blackhearts in the 80s, as you know. Um, I started off doing lighting with uh, Joan, filling in for my, my dear old friend, Brian Hartley. Um, and when Brian came back, um, uh, he, you know, he said to me, Hey, do you, do you know how to do guitars? Like uh, fuck no! <laughs> I don't know anything about guitars. She goes, "Well, you know, they're going to ask you if you know how to do guitars because they like you. They want to know if you want to, you know, stick around." You know, And I'm like, uh, you know, just just tell them yes, and we'll teach you. Uh, you know, and when you're, you know, you're, you're a young kid, you know, you're you're adventurous. You know, I would never hmm. try to pretend I knew something I don't know now. But, but I said yes, sure, yeah, I'll love to do guitars, and uh, you know, one of the other texts you know, taught me how to string a guitar and tune it and stretch the strings and all that nonsense. And I brought a guitar home and changed strings on it a few times and, and dabbled around. But anyway, I was, you know, lighting into guitar tech. And, you know, you know, Joan at that time of her career was doing the anywhere with an electrical outlet tour, you know, where we would play clubs or state fairs or, you know, whatever, you know, you know, the civic auditoriums, that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, she, you know, we did a record, uh, in the studio and I, I was the studio tech and, and, uh, the record called Up Your Alley, which is, uh, has the hit, I hate myself for loving you and Little Liar, you know, had some big hits on it. And so, you know, she started getting more exposure. <clears throat> and so the tour manager, Elliot Saltzman came to me one day and said, Chris, you're the production manager now. Uh, it's just, uh, well, what's that? You know, and, and do I have to? <laughs> You know, I don't, you know, we were, we were happy with our lives of not really having a lot of responsibility and, and uh, you know, screwing off and sleeping late. And, you know, the gigs were easy, you know, you, you you roll in with your bobtail and you put your back line underneath local lights and stuff that kind of thing. But, you know, it was time to do more than that. And so I'm like, okay, what is this production manager thing as well? You know, Jones is going to need things, you know, like, you know, water and stage hands and that kind of thing. So we, we sat down and looked at the writer and we're flipping through it. And he's kind of teaching me how to, you know, what we need and how to kind of advance and, you know, and then there's no computers or email or, you know, <clears throat> it's just these these printed documents you get from the agent with the promoter's contact information on it. And it was a different story back then. And, you know, I used to hate it. I hated being the production manager. Um, you know, because, you know, you'd, you'd spend your days off in your hotel room on the phone, you know, with a rotary dial phone. And you'd call and inevitably someone's not there or you're waiting for a call back. And, you know, and you just spend your entire day off while, you, while, you know, while the rest of the crew is out having a day off somewhere in whatever city you're in. So I'm like earliest form of FOMO fear of missing out you can ever have, you know, that's mm. so I hated being a production manager then, but, you know, I stuck it out and, and, you know, and I managed it and got it done and, you know, we had these really simple gigs. So one truck with lights and sound and backline and, you know, one crew bus, not a lot, you know, everybody did everything. I was still doing guitars. I was doing production and, you know, uh, you know, the lighting guy, Brian had to be attack and the sound mixer, Billy Crater had to be attack. And, you know, it was, it's just, you know, very small that everybody got it done, but you know, that went on for a few years. And, uh, and then in, in 1988, 89, Joan put out a record called up your alley that did really, really well. Um, and we got a support role with Robert Plant on his mm-hmm. now and Zen tour. And, uh, that's when I started meeting, uh, you know, Brits for the first time and seeing, you know, some of these old veterans and, and watching how they work. And it was, you know, incredibly fascinating. You know, I was just a guy, you know, figuring it out on my own. And I was in clubs and, and doing, you know, this, that, and the other. But, you know, being able to see um, <clears throat> these guys work was incredible. And uh, I met uh, their production manager, Roy Lamb. Roy's uh still in the business now, but uh uh, you know, he was, you know, probably not that old in 1988, 89, but you know, he's older than me. Um, but I got to see a real seasoned production manager work for the first time, you know, and uh, you know, see how they handled themselves and how they went about their business and 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 what exactly the job was. And I paid a lot of attention and I watched and I would come in early and and see the lights and the sound and the video come together and um, and, uh, you know, actually there was no video back then, but the lights and the sound, um, and I learned a lot from Roy. Roy's a, a gentleman, a legend, a legend, you know, been around for a long time, still works in the industry, works for the who, uh, I see him every, every so often and we reminisce about the times, but, um, uh, yeah, so that's when I really Felt I started becoming a production manager after actually, you know, going, okay, I I, I know what this job is now. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I started settling into it better because, you know, before I said I didn't like the job, I hated it. Um, You know, but, uh, you know, I started taking more responsibility and learning and, but, you know, again, you know, I was young and uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do in the industry. But, uh, you know, I stopped working for Joan in 1989. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles and I started working for, you know, anybody who would hire me out there. And, I, you know what, I didn't push myself in production when I first moved to L.A. I didn't really want to do it. Uh, but it's interesting, My, like the first job I got in L.A. was working for the band Rat. Mm. Um, round and round, you know, that band. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and uh we weren't doing big gigs you know we were doing rehearsals and this and the other and, and and going out and and uh doing the detonator record it was a record called detonator actually i was doing stuff from reach for the sky before that but you know detonator came out and and we went on the tour and there was a production manager and you know he kind of just sat in the office and i'm thinking to myself wow when i did production i did fucking everything you know i was Unloading the, trucks, unloading the trucks and loading the trucks and guitars and stage managed. I just fucking did it all. This guy didn't do anything. Um, so I started, you know, somebody had to do all these other things and nobody else wanted to. So I, I was the first guy at the truck and, uh, you know, I was, I just started taking responsibility. And before you know it, I was the stage manager, you know, and before you know that, uh, you know, I was taking on a super amount of responsibility on that project. Uh, and then, you know, some other small things went by and then eventually I got a call saying, we heard you used to be a production manager, you know? <laughs> yes, I did. And how would you like to be a production manager again? And I started working for Megadeth and, uh, on uh, Rust in Peace, 1992, something like that. Hmm. Um, before that, you know, I did, you know, I did, you know, I did rad. I worked for Ozzy. I was born as a stage manager, base tech. I... You know, worked for Don Dokken, and I, you know, worked for a lot of you know hair metal kind of things, you know, Faster Pussycat. But you know, fast forwarding through all that, back to becoming a production manager again. When I started doing production for Megadeth, I, I really felt I knew the job, and I really felt uh, that I could do it and do it well. And I and I did. You know, we we had I had a lot of success working for Megadeth, and I you know finished the Rust in Peace tour and then you know came off the road with them and then stayed an employee and did a record with them uh a countdown to extinction um and then that went out on the road with a big production and a proprietary design from a from a show designer and you know it was you know kind of proper for for you know where i was in the business at that time you know probably four trucks as opposed to one or you know and uh you know again learning as you go figuring it out as you go. Um, But yeah, you know, and I've been a production manager ever since then, you know, but I I started off as a production manager with Joan, stepped away for a while, did some other stuff, but, you know, I just fell back into it, you know, Mm. and, uh, and I've not, uh, you know, stayed away.
0: Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, you've done everything but sound, I think, right. I mean, you've done lights and pyro guitars, backline bass production manager, stage manager, you're so merch,
1: <laughs> you know. Probably, yeah. <laughs> in the Joe and the Joan Jet days, you know, it was like you know, it was like five people in the crew, really, and we yeah. all did everything. You know, when it, when right. it came to, you know, the show, you know, everybody was involved. Yeah, but those right. were different days, man. You know, it's just uh, I think I've told you before in another podcast. You know, this, these the shows are so big now. There's somebody for everything. There's right. somebody for everything. You know.
0: Well, I mean, at the scale that you're at now, I mean, I'm sure that there's still kind of that uh, smaller venue club tour kind of thing where, geez, I mean, I mean, I had a little stint with Lita Ford, right? You're talking about Joan Jett. So, you know, another part of the Runaways. And there was probably only four or five of us. And yeah, we did
1: it all, right? So, yeah. were you, Did you consider yourself a decent guitar tech? Were you good at it? I I got by. I'd yeah, honest, me too. You know, I was you know, awful. Yeah, I was um, awful, you know, and by, you know, I, I, I I was lucky doing guitars for Joan because it was, a, it was a melody maker guitar. No tremolo or anything. The cable came out of the guitar and it went right into the head. Thank God. It wasn't a pedal board. <laughs> there wasn't, you know, no effects, nothing. Uh, and it was just kind thanks. of, yeah, I for can, I can figure that out. And I, boy, boy, did I make some mistakes even, even at that level. <clears throat> I
0: yeah. think the biggest,
1: the biggest mistake I made, um, we were doing a fly gig. Then these were the days where you can pull up to JFK and bring guitars and amps and everything in and just put them on, just check them. You know, you just checked everything. It was, those were the days. You could never do that now. And we did a fly gig to Detroit to do a, to do, you know, a show in a, a, free show in a park or something like that. And. You know, you know, nowadays you fly in the day before, so you're in there and you get up the next morning, you go to the gig, no, we, we flew on day of show. You know, you go to the airport, you fly. It was one of those things where you landed and the promoter was there with the van, you threw everything into the van, and you was straight to the gig. And it was one of those, unload the van, set up, and go on as soon as you're ready kind of thing. So we show up to this, it was a daytime show, there was no lights, there was just this slab of concrete with a bunch of people in front of it. And we're setting up when the audience is there and we're kind of in a hurry and we're under the, under the gun and, and we're just chucking shit up. And you know, and, and we finally get it up and we finally get it ready. And I, and I tell Elliot this to manager, okay, we're ready to go. <clears throat> and Joan comes out and I hand her her guitar. And you know, she always met me at the amp, so she can plug in the guitar and gin, 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 a little bit and play with the knobs and look at me and give me the thumbs up. and But one thing I didn't realize, is we set the back line of the drum riser way too far upstage. I mean, way too far. You know, and I'm looking at it and Joan did not even get halfway from her amp. Oh, she probably got halfway from her amp to the mic stand to sing. And the guitar cable went straight, flat like a clothesline and pulled her back line down. Just oh, <laughs> completely oh, oh, oh. yanked on it because one of those things where you wrap the guitar cable around the the handle of the amp and then plug it in uh, strain relief. Uh, and a whole stack came flying down. We're looking, oh shit. So we all go out there, we slide the back line forward, we slide the drum riser forward. And you know, uh, it's one of those really embarrassing moments in life.
0: But. Uh, yeah, I've had a couple of cringe-worthy moments. I mean, before I you know got out on the road at Lita, I was doing a lot of stuff on the uh, the Hollywood strip there, and one kind of up and coming band had hired me um to be a guitar tech for this hot young gun guitar player and they're looking for a record contract and you know i was doing all the stuff with those guitars and and on like one of their premier kind of acoustic guitar songs and i didn't have a whole lot of experience with acoustic guitars but anyway i over i overwrapped the strings on a brand new set of strings and i overwrapped them on on the uh on on the, the tuning pegs and um the strings just kept stretching and stretching and stretching and stretching, and uh-huh. kept going. and it went all through the song, and it just kept going on of uh-huh. tune while he was playing, and it was just kind of like this. And you know, the lead singer of the band's looking at me; he's like giving me this the, the evil eye. He's like, uh-huh. "That was, was fired." So you, what,
1: you didn't you didn't cut the strings enough? You just you did too much of a rap on I it. Too too to much me. of a rap, yeah. yeah. And then they, they just kept stretching
0: out on him as he was playing. So I was just like, uh, ah. "Boy, yeah, was, I,
1: yeah." I got hired once. I got a call from the Scorpions. And this is still in the early 90s, the Scorpions were a huge arena act at the time, and they were doing the Concrete Forum in LA. It's one of these, uh, you know, this gathering of, of uh, musicians and uh, management, and, you know, and they get together and they have, you know, it's like a convention, a convention for the music, heavy metal music industry. And nevertheless, I was working for, I got hired to do the Scorpions, and I show up, and it was for the guitar player, Matthias jobs you know, the lead guitar player. And uh, I started pulling out the guitars and looking at them and they had a floating Floyd Rose tremolos. Oh. You know, the tremolos where you can pull, you push down and you can pull up and I didn't yeah. know anything about those, you, yeah. know? My SS, you know. You you really needed to be a good guitar tech with finesse to be able to figure out a floating Floyd Rose. And, uh, and I'm trying and I'm tuning and I'm stretching and I can get it in tune, but as soon as you hit the tremolo bar, it's out of tune. And I didn't know what to do. So I'm just tuning it the best I can and the show starts and I hand him the guitar and it was, you know, it's like three or four songs set. That's all it was. And he goes on stage and starts the song and, you know, 30 seconds into the song, his guitar is completely out of tune. And they had to stop the song and he had to tune the guitar himself. And it was just one of those really really (laughs) moments in the industry. (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah. Gosh, even
0: though it was like 30 years ago, it kind of makes you cringe,
1: but yeah. oh, I know. My other yeah. big, my other big, this was really wasn't a mistake in my, it was kind of a mistake because it was my responsibility, but uh, I was working for Poison doing guitars for C.C. C. DeVille oh, yeah, on uh, the MTV Music Awards, and uh, it was one of those things where you roll the back line, but during a commercial, you roll the back line out and you get it done real quick, and and uh, you know, the guitar he wanted, he handed to me. And and uh, we were doing the set change, and what I did is I took, it was a Les Paul he wanted to play, and I took the guitar and I put it on a stand, and I just did a random, I just plugged the guitar into the cable, you know, the cable into the guitar at the bottom. I didn't wrap it around the strap, because I wanted to, I'm just checking, I just plug it in, you know, and I'm just checking it just to make sure I'm getting noise, you know, and uh, and uh, I turn around and CeCe's got the guitar on and they're going. And I'm like, fuck, I didn't wrap the strap. I mean, I didn't wrap the cable around the strap. It's the cables just coming out of the guitar straight down. <laughs> and, uh, and they start the song and they're playing. And I'm thinking, oh no, this is, this is not going to be good. This is going to be awful. And the song's almost over. I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm mad I got have gotten away with that. But, you know, right when I thought that he steps on the cable, Pulls the cable out of the guitar during the song. Guitar goes dead. He's reaching down, picking up the cable. He's trying to find the hole. and He's like jabbing at the bottom of the guitar with this guitar cable, trying to plug it. And he eventually plugs it back in and they finish the song. But it was hugely embarrassing for him, for me, for the band. It was just just awful. Yeah. You know, and I, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to hand him the guitar i'm going to make sure it goes on properly i'm going to wrap the cable on the strap not just have it on the stands waiting for him you know i, uh, I wasn't the point you know it wasn't but uh, i was an awful guitar tech i really was and and and, and 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 it wasn't you know because it was because i didn't dig it i was no passion for it i didn't want to learn you know wirelesses came out and and I, I and you needed to learn how to squelch them, and I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to work a digital delay. you know and then well, I started up for play. I started yeah. working for bands that you know had the the, the, the Bob Bradshaw pedal board system, and mm-hmm. I didn't know how to program those at all, but you know, people put up with me as a guitar tech because I did so much. I did production, I did stage management, and I just did everything and I, and I did it well enough and I, they liked me well enough where they put up with my poor guitar tech skills, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, eventually I just, you know, had to stop doing guitars, you know. It wasn't good and I was getting older and the projects I was working for were getting bigger. The last time I did guitars was for Billy Duffy. The cult, and uh, probably 1995 was the last time I, you know, so 25 years it's been since I've since I've had to do guitars. Good riddance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, uh,
1: huh. I spoke to Billy Duffy recently. I just checked on him. He's, uh, you know, we say hi to each other every once in a while, even though I haven't worked for him in 25 years. But uh, he's a good guy, you know. I, I worked for the cult at the very end of their heyday. They were still an arena band when I first started working with them. Um, you know. He was, he was, you know, he's, he's sober. He's in the program and he was sober when I stopped working for him, but he wasn't sober when I started working for him. He was, uh, he was drinking. Um, and I would make drinks for him on stage and and he would just go fucking nuts, you know, but, uh, he sobered up and it was good. But, you know, I probably did boy three record cycles with the, with the, with the cult in the nineties. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I did a lot of shows with them all over the world, you know, opening for Metallica and stadiums in Europe and, you know, doing our own thing and going to South America with them. You know, I mean, I I did a lot of work with the Cult and with Ian and Billy and and whoever else was in the band at the time, because the, the band, the, you know, changed a few times when, hmm. when I was there.
0: Yeah. Know. I love the early stuff. It was so good. So good. You know, there, there's a whole, you know, not that we would ever do this because it'd probably be the wrong thing to do, but there's a whole, podcast of just you know disaster artists that you've worked for you know I've, I've heard the stories you know you just mentioning him as far as his drinking issue
1: oh but I like but, Billy Billy's yeah. a friend you know we were born the same year same age so you know hmm. we, we've always gotten along you know it's one of those artists that I've stayed uh, in touch with over the years yeah. but you know I'm not so sure I want to get into talking about artists that i
0: Oh, no, like, no, no. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Not that I'm just saying. It's like as far as... Let like me tell you who a
1: real asshole. Is, you
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I was just kind of reminiscing because, I mean, obviously, being your brother, I've, I've heard a lot of the stories, you know, of artists that you've worked with who have just been an absolute handful and really difficult at times because of their substance abuse issues. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, that, that's what
1: happened on, on Megadeth, you know, where Dave Mustaine, who has uh, been uh, well-known, drug right. addict the period of time, but he was sober and clean at the time. And it was, you know, the first tour I do him, Rust in peace, he was clean. And then the second tour started off clean. And then he, I don't know what happened. He fell off the wagon and started, uh, drinking bottles, like cough syrup and, you know, doing goofy things like that. And to the mm. point where the tour just, he just fell apart. The tour just ended one day we were rolling. The next day was over and he was in rehab, <clears throat> but, uh, mm. you know, I mean, he cleaned himself up, so good for him. Yeah, Megadeth is one of
0: my favorite bands of that era, for sure. I really, really like them a lot. But yeah, I, I did
1: the classic lineup, though. I mean, you know, with uh, Dave, and, oh, yeah. Dave and Dave, Dave and Marty Dave, Marty Friedman and uh, yeah. Nick, 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 who's, uh, who Nick who passed away actually a few years ago. Oh, I didn't know the that. drummer, Nick. Yeah, but uh, yeah. I run into Dave Alifson, you know, uh, you know, the bass player. Every once in a while, when I go through Phoenix, he'll he'll come down and. He's a good guy, um, and uh, I've run into Mustaine, but uh, you know, I'm not I'm not in a hurry to run into him again. But he just went through a, a throat cancer thing. Oh, unfortunately, yeah, he had, oh, had some sort that. of or mouth cancer, throat cancer, some sort uh, of oral cancer. But apparently, he's beating it. So you know, good, good for, for him. him. Yeah, and yeah. Megadeth, you know, they still make money. They still do records. They're still, yeah, you know, they're still you know relevant. <clears throat>
0: i would say so sure absolutely
1: And you know, uh, it's tough in that genre of music you know it's tough unless you're metallica you know who just or a former member of just... metallica
0: <laughs> you know uh, well, yeah,
1: funny
0: well kind of like you know so bringing up to speed i mean obviously the, the past so kind of boy i mean I didn't know you spent that much time with the Colt, but kind of, you know, building it up to the past decade or so, I know it's well even 15 years now, geez, with Roger Waters, it's been your primary. Uh, What was kind of say between like that era of, uh, you know, the five years before you got it with Roger, like the early, like 2000 to 2005, what was that like? Uh,
1: 2000, like 99, 2000 is when I was with Nine Inch Nails. That's you know when I first you know moved to New Orleans, you know where I still am, uh, working with uh, Nine Inch Nails on the the, the Fragile the Fragility tour. Mm. Um, so that was 2000, uh, 99, nine two thousand, and then two thousand one, I did a little bit with uh, Matchbox Twenty, who was a huge band at the time. Very mm. nice people, you know pop music you can like it you can hate it but you know i I enjoyed working for those guys and that went into uh jane's addiction doing their jubilee tour in uh, 2001 um that's when uh both perry and dave navarro put out solo records and they decided to tour as jane's addiction and they both kind of did a little bit of their solo stuff and you know, we did a little Porno for Pyros because three out of four members of Porno for Pyros were in the band at the time. It was really, really cool tour. Hmm. It was a really, really cool tour. As a matter of fact, I just, uh, you know, have you heard of Legacy Box? I have not. Legacy Box is a business where you can send old, old uh, formats of tape and whatnot, and they'll and they'll digitize it for you. So I've got a bunch of old videotapes of uh, uh, that I've shot myself of. You know, you're of Nine Inch Nails and Jane's Addiction and A Perfect Circle and Audio Slave, you know, and I've got them and I'm sending them to sending them in. I haven't looked at these things in, you know, 20 years or whatever. Wow. I'm sending them to Legacy Box and they're going to put them on a hard drive for me, you know, so it'd be fun to watch that stuff again. Um, But Anyway, early 2000s, as I just said, some of the bands I just worked for that period, you know, which, you know, uh, uh, change addiction went into worked for Mary J Blige for a while. Who was lovely, and super talented. I did I did the No More Drama tour in 2002, um and that kind of led into working with uh, Audio Slave. I did Audio Slave, and I probably know you know. I worked for Beck first. I worked for Beck on his Sea uh, Change tour. What a hmm. lovely record that is, Sea Change. Yeah. It was Beck with the Flaming Lips, and the Flaming Lips were the band, and uh, Beck was the you know. So the Flaming Lips were the support act and Beck's band, um, which was really interesting. You know, don't really, I had some trouble with the Flaming Lips because, you know, they were kind of uncontrollable. They would, they would just do all this goofy shit and, you know, really do things that I thought fucked the show up. And I would get really angry. And one day Beck said to me, goes, Chris, you know, just calm down. When you hire the Flaming Lips, you get the Flaming Lips. You know, Mm. so he got it and he understood that uh man, yeah, just unprofessional shit that was just driving me crazy. Mm. But uh yeah, Beck went to into Mary J. Blige. No, pardon me, no, Mary J. Blige went into Beck and then Beck went into Audio Slave, uh, which was all of two thousand three. And then I spent all of two thousand four with a perfect circle on thirteenth step, which was a great tour and a great record. Wow, what a great period of time that was, you know. Yeah, um, I love that record, and what a great band! You know, Josh Fries playing drums, and mm. you know, Jordy playing bass, Twiggy, James e. Howe playing guitar, um, of course, Maynard and Billy. Uh, great band. Loved that tour. Uh, that was all of 2004, and that led into 2005, where I started working with uh, Molly Crew. You know, we've talked a lot about Molly Crew on this one, so that was all of 2005 uh, and in, and partially into 2006. And then I started working for Roger Waters in 2006, you know, and uh, he's been my primary employer for the last 15 ish years. But, you know, I hesitate to say that because every time I do a project with him, I don't know there's going to be another one. It's not like, okay, Chris, you're the project manager for Roger Waters until the end of your career. It wasn't one of those things. It was, Hmm. you know, we did the dark side of the moon tour, which, you know, was a year and a half, you know? Um, and then, uh, that ended in sometime in 2008 and I started working for Janet Jackson, which was really, really cool. Great lady, Janet Jackson.
0: I was there and, with you.
1: Yeah, that's right. Fuck. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> and, then I did, and then I did some other you know, bits and pieces and then Roger decided to do the wall. I go, like, oh, wow, Roger's working again. And they're asking me back. Fantastic. Uh, you know, the wall was, you know, between rehearsals and, you know, uh, everything. it was 3 yearish kind of project you know 240 shows around the world you know um, starting off in arenas and then turning into a stadium thing and man it was hard work and really fulfilling and to this day you know even though I saw it 240 times it's still the greatest show ever that this industry has ever put out I feel Mm. um and we've talked about that yeah, uh, and then you know, and then Roger after after the Wall was that 2013. You know, I started working for Muse, did a lot of stuff with Muse, uh, did a couple record cycles with them. You know, Roger came back again, and we did the Us and Them, and then uh, and he's decided to do another project, and uh, hmm. just keep getting asked back, which I'm so lucky, so lucky to yeah, to, to, tour. to 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 know him, and you know, it's just great because you know it's a family atmosphere and uh you know everybody trusts everybody everybody respects everybody you just do your job and and you're motivated to do a good job for Roger because you're getting you're taking care of really well you know you don't work every day uh, unless you're doing early load ins you know there's no such thing as two shows in a row unless they're in the same building uh you're either checking in or checking out of a hotel every day you know you're it's just what it is and you know you're, Buses are great, and you know we always get the early check-ins on short drives, and you know it's just, you know, a tour, tour 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 catering, and you know Roger and management are just wonderful. The creative team are wonderful. The band are wonderful. You know, I really <clears throat> over over the three plus tours I've done with them, I'm, I was able to put together a really great crew. Yeah,
0: that's awesome.
1: it's interesting because there's you know. Anybody listening to this, you know, tours and tourism knows that tours have difficult people on them. You know that sometimes are kind of part of the part of the fabric of the organization. They're just in there, and uh, it's really been really interesting that anybody who's ever been trouble with Roger, I've never had to fire them or remove them because they just tend to fucking harvest themselves. You know, they tend to somehow fuck themselves, you know, to the point where, you know what, everybody sees it now. You know, and uh to the point where the only people left are just the lovely people who want to be there and enjoy their work and so would those people just Roger. leave on their own? <clears throat> no, no, they they'll they'll get they'll get fired or they'll get, you know. Okay. You know, Roger you didn't have to do it. You know, I, I'm not saying I've never fired anybody working for Roger, but you know, you know somebody who's been really in with the organization, like the people that can walk in the dressing room, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, Backline yeah. and monitors and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but yeah,
0: hmm. I have
1: no idea what we were talking about or what yeah. led me to talking about this. no but no,
0: uh, we were just kind of like going from going one through.
1: thing to the other. Well, just,
0: you know, just talking about the timeline of uh, what you've done, how you started and, you know, what you're kind of like building up to and stuff. And, you know, there's, you know, it's even even with the uh, pandemic and the lockdown, I mean, you know, there's Roger stuff and then there's tool stuff and there's all kind, you know, so there's always potential and hopefully things will get back on the road again, you know. Mm. Probably looking at you know twenty twenty one before anything of any yeah. probably be probably be next spring or summer, probably be outdoor venues because that'll be with the safest where there's you know sunlight and fresh air. But well, we'll anyway. We'll see. We'll yeah. see
1: if a vaccine happens, you know, and the vaccine trials are moving along really, really well from what I understand. They are. And now I, I was listening to the, you know, the news, which I try not to they're saying that uh that you know covid-19 maybe doesn't spread with non-symptomatic people or maybe it's not as prevalent as they thought it was or
0: uh, no I we're don't going know. through some second wave stuff mate, <clears throat> so we'll see how it unfolds but you know a while back you you shared with me a document um that you said you never shared with anybody, but, but it was, you know, kind of like your resume of sorts and timeline. And I was just trying to like reminisce or not reminisce, but just kind of go over it and kind of thinking about how I, you know, of course, you know, being my brother for the past 50 years, um, you know, back and forth to Japan, just seeing how many times you've been around the world. And so, you know, Bands aside, or maybe, maybe like, you know, best shows or best cities or best meals or best, you know, bike rides or best artists, you know, what are some of the most memorable, you know, cities, places, people, events that, you know, when someone, you know, when you look back at your career so far, you know, what, what, what are the top things that kind of float to the top of your mind?
1: Well, you've asked me this question in another way before. And I think part of my answer was, you know, it depends, you know. Where we are, and uh, and uh, you know, is it during the day? Is it during night? But you know, the, the places that really get me excited, the water in Europe, to be honest with you, you know, when you know, people who tour, you know, they look at the schedule, the first thing they look at is where are my days off? <clears throat> you know, that's 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 the shit that keeps you doing this, looking forward <laughs> to exciting days off, yeah. you know. You know, and people, people think of that, they think about, you know, the, you know, the the bus ride after a loadout going into a day off, you know, roadie Friday, you know, those are the things you think of staying up and having drinks with the guys and having some food and then, you know, having a nice long bus ride and getting a rest and, you know, rarely, rarely, I don't know a lot of, I don't know about a lot of lighting guys who think to myself, man, I can't wait for that. Fucking four a m fucking lobby call you know and, right. and you know but uh you know I'm not saying that people don't enjoy their work because they do people are very proud of what they do and and uh you know but you know back to your question, you know the, the places that I really get excited about for the most part um you know unless it's a trip to Japan, you know, a trip to Japan everywhere. All the time, it's great. Um, I just love the culture there. I love the food there. I mean, the food—it's I'm all about the food there. And mm. uh, the record stores are incredible. The whole music scene, the passion people have for everything—it's just a different place, man. You know, you, it's but, like
0: different planet to a Westerner. J- I J- guess J- yeah.
1: Japan and, and America are so different. Is, do you have any <clears>
0: stories <throat> of uh, Japan? Like, you know, most memorable. Kind of well, I, I, I,
1: yeah, a couple of them. But, you know, the first thing you notice when you land in Japan is <clears throat> you go to the luggage claim area and there's a line on the ground. Like that, That's about, you know, three feet away from the carousel. And people stand outside the line. And when their bag comes, they cross the line to grab their bag. Hmm. That's how they do it. You know, and everybody's in on it. You know, not in America. No Pays attention to anything like that. Everybody's just hogging the space in front of the carousel. You know,
0: throwing elbows. But so there's
1: there's order there. And you know, when when I was a kid going to Japan for the first time, there there was vending machines on the street that sold beer. You could buy a beer out of a machine, and the kids didn't do it because they knew they weren't supposed to. You know, that they there was there's order there. You know, the first big show I ever did in Japan was at the was at the Tokyo Dome, the Big Egg. Mm. It was the 1990 uh, New Year's Eve cake. You know, it was a lot of bands on it. You know, it was Don Henley and Brian Adams. And, you know, it was a, a lot of huge artists on there. Uh, but after the show, the house lights went on and nobody moved. The house lights went on and everybody stayed seated. And then announcement would be made. Section one hundred, you can go. And everybody in section one hundred would get up and leave. Section one hundred one, you can go. And every then that section would get up and go. There's order. You know, it <laughs> was crazy. You try to do that in America and make everybody sit until it's your turn to leave. No, ain't gonna happen. You know, but it's it's just the ethos there. You know, there the, again. I keep using the word order. People have order in their life there. And, and it seems to, you know, there's traffic and there's queues and there's stupid shit over there too. But, you know, I just always been fascinated with, you know, how they have a handle on just about everything you can think of there. Wow. Um, but, you know, when I think of Japan, you know, I've been there so many times, I've been lucky, you know, upwards of, you know, between 15 and 20 times over the years. Uh, you know, oh, sheesh, I don't know, man. walking through Kyoto. Uh, you know, having having different cuisines you've never had before. I, I remember the promoter would take us out to eat. And <clears throat> there were some days where, you know, you'd walk up to this building. looks looked like an office building and it's dark and you walk in the lobby and it's dark and you go to this elevator, like, where are you taking me? Are you taking me to my death? And you'd go up this lift to the 30th floor. Do you get off the lift and it's dark in the hallway? And then you walk down this hallway, turn a corner. And then there's this little restaurant, you know, with a hot top and, and chef cooking for a few people. And you'd sit there and eat and go, what the fuck? How do you know about this place? And, and, and you'd sit there and and eat eel and, chicken cooked in ways you've never known before and, and grilled oysters and you know, all these sauces and concoctions and, and you drink beer and sip sake. And <clears throat> those are great memories, man. Those, mm, those I, I gotta go. Food, I've never been. I think I think of food mainly about Japan and then the really great record stores. But back to your original question, what are the places that can be excited? You know, I mean, Japan's one, I love going to Australia love now what's,
0: what's the allure with australia just the vibe is it just kind of like you know is it the people is it the place what is it about australia
1: well yeah you go to australia and then you you, you would tend to go either east to west or west to east meaning you either start in perth and go perth adelaide melbourne sydney brisbane auckland or you can start in Auckland and then go to Brisbane and, and go to Sydney, then Melbourne, then Adelaide, then Perth, blah, blah, blah. But it's all about getting to Melbourne and getting to Sydney. I mean, Brisbane and Perth are pretty cool and Auckland's very cool. But, you know, if the tour is scheduled right and you can get some time off in, in Sydney and Melbourne, oh man. And then, and, and of course, there's the cities are very different. You know, there's a bit of a rivalry between the two cities. And I think a lot of people would agree that, you know, Sydney's the LA and Melbourne's the New York. You know, Mm. New York is, I mean, Melbourne's got, you know, it's more cosmopolitan and it's got, you know, maybe more culture and you go to Sydney and it's all about outside. It's all about water. It's all about, you know, being active outside. Mm. And some people prefer Melbourne, some people prefer Sydney. I like them both, you know? I probably, if I had to live in one of the two, I'd live in Melbourne. But yeah, love Australia, love Japan. Um, I've done a few tours of Asia where, you know, you do the Hong Kong, Beijing, Singapore, uh, Bangkok, you know, Manila, you do that kind of run. I've done that a few times. That's always super exciting. Um, But, you know, Always love a tour of Europe. You know, a day, there's nothing like a day off in Barcelona. There's nothing like a day off in in, in, in Rome. There's nothing like uh, a day off in Berlin. Berlin is really good. Love Berlin, love Copenhagen, uh, Stockholm, <clears throat> you know. Geez, you know, Europe is just, when you're touring the States, you know, you're kind of, you know, I don't want to say it's the same thing. I mean, because obviously Phoenix and Cleveland are, completely different from each other you know with you know with the weather and geographically you know the way people speak but somehow in europe man it just seems like you're going into another world you know the language is different and you know in the old days the currency was different architecture can be different architecture can be vastly different um but you know i I don't know man i I, I, okay all right being on the road is just so fun and so exciting and 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 these days i always get a kick out of the fact that almost every tour i do i go somewhere i've never been you know mm. whether whether it's a up-and-coming city that's got an arena that wasn't there before and that's the reason or or you know i'm up with roger and we go to malta or something like that i mean who goes to malta you know i mean i've been lucky with roger going to places like you know dubai and, and malta and tel aviv and you know, these places that are on the touring circuit, you know, and I get to go to these places as well, Um, which is always super exciting, you know, Mm. and uh,
0: right on now, just to, you know, something that just popped into my head, obviously you've got quite a bit of artwork on you um, and that you've accumulated that across different places. So as far as like the tattoos and stuff that you've got, where have you uh, accumulated most of them? Tunt?
1: Well, when I first started getting tattoos, um, it was kind of like a Trotsky uh, a collection, you know? I wanted to get a tattoo in that city, and then I wanted to get another tattoo in that city, and then I'd move huh. along, and it, I'd, I'd go to these, you know, so I could look at my arm and go, I got this in Berlin, and I got that in Toronto, and I got, you know, this, then, you know. But, you know, I've, I've learned, and I, if I could do it over again, I'd have just one artist do all my work. You know, just so there's continuity and a level of trust you have. But, you know, if I ever get tattooed again, it's only going to be by one of two people. Unless I meet somebody new that turns me on. Um, My whole left arm is done in Melbourne, Australia, back to Melbourne. Uh, A guy named Jordy Cole, who does a a new school. I wouldn't say new school, but uh, it's not traditional Japanese. It's more of a newish Japanese where I guess some of the rules are broken. There's nothing new school looking about it, but uh, on my right side, <clears throat> a lot of my work has been done by the um, Jolt Sarkozy in, in Budapest, Hungary. Um, really, really talented guy. Um, he's done a lot of the work on my right side, but uh, you know, amongst all these other things are the bits and pieces of things that I got here and there and the other, you know, hmm. uh, I don't know. I've yeah, seen but, some uh,
0: good uh, some good work these days where you can do some good cover up. So if there's something you just want to
1: make my uh, way. so yeah. yeah, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try the uh, the laser removal. I'm gonna try it. You know, hmm. there's a couple spots on, on on my body that I'd like to get touched up and I'd like to see if it works. Sure, sure, yeah. But who, but who knows? I mean, I think there's uh, I've read these things where you can start a diet in a certain way and and train your lymph nodes to remove the tattoos from your body yourself or some weird like that, you know, I don't know know what there is. I don't know what there is to it. Huh. I haven't heard anything like that. So yeah. Maybe I just made that up. I don't know. You
0: know, another thing um, I'm very aware of, and one of the the few opportunities that I've had the tour, which has been great is being able to bring our mountain bikes. And uh, I think that's one of the best ways to get around any city. Oh, uh, so agree. man I just a couple times I was in Europe and just had a day off and was able to blast around on my bike you just can't see a whole city <clears throat> as well as you can I know
1: so. I've been lucky man I've had my I've ridden a bike in South America I've ridden a bike in China you know I've had a bike in just about everywhere I've gone you know and then the in the days when when we were younger and fitter it was all about finding the trails it was all about you know, if there's like four people, four or five people on the tour that, that was were avid mountain bikers, and we'd take turns, you know, and one you know, day off to the next, we'd take turns. It was where was your turn? You had to research it where to get a truck, go rent the truck, bring the truck back to the hotel, get all the bikes in it, and then drive to a trail that we've found online, you know. Hmm. And that was what it was for a while. And <clears throat> it was, you know. But you know what? I don't. I never have days off are too short to spend it driving and going right. to a rental vehicle. You know, I've, you know. These days, I just love getting on the bike, just riding right away from the hotel. Mm. You know, because most of these cities, if there's a river going through the city, there's a river trail. Yeah, there's a tarmac oh. river trail. Every every major city or where the river goes, there you can you can go to the river and find his tarmac trail and go for miles and miles along the river. And that's why I prefer that.
0: I did that And seeing London. the city,
1: and seeing yeah. the city, yeah.
0: London was great for that, so. Oh, London's sure. good for that,
1: Paris is good for that. Oh boy, riding a bike in Paris is so fun, Yeah.
0: Yeah, wow. no, I haven't, so I haven't fun. done that. The two times I was in Paris, I was, you know, just a, like a club tour kind of thing. It was not fun at all. So, yeah, yeah, I've been there, but I've never been there.
1: Yeah riding, bike,
0: yeah, riding a
1: bike, man. Riding a bike, yeah. I rode my bike today. So I didn't ride my today, but I've been riding. I, I've i got, I've got, I've got three bikes. I've got uh my 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 specialized camera, which is a road bike. It's never been to my house. It's just always been on the road. It's in a it's in a hamper, with the wheels off, and and then I've got my. uh I've got my, my old Santa Cruz here at home, which was my original, my first original, uh, you know, well, not the original one, but you know, the All one right. that I've toured with the most, I still, that, that's at home. And I've got a beach cruiser, which is, which I, you know.
0: Gets the most miles these days. Uh,
1: you want to go get a half, go get some milk and you ride your bike to the store to get some milk, you know, that kind of bike.
0: Yeah. I kind of wish I wished I worked in, uh, worked, lived in an environment that uh, the bike culture was conducive to that jump on a oh, bike just to yeah. go to the store and stuff so maybe one of these days but uh
1: well it's what's about europe back to europe it, it, it is it is bicycles are a mode of transportation you yeah. know lots of people use bikes you go into copenhagen or, or or amsterdam and you go to the train station and there is a sea of bicycles there I've because seen, people yeah. ride their bikes there and you know I've, I've i've spent some time in certain cities where there's some doing rehearsals and there whatever and and, you know, you, you you know, I would ride my bike to the venue from the hotel. And, and you see women in high heels and work clothes riding their bike to hmm. work because that's how they do it. That's how they get to work. You know, yeah. you see men in business suits and, you know, and very, very smartly dressed people, you know. Having a car makes no sense in a lot of these places, you know. There's nowhere to park them, you know, and you sit in traffic and, you know, bicycles man you know'm mm. I don't have to tell you bicycles freaking
0: oh. rule they, they, they do <clears throat> it's a massive part of my life And we can talk about that sometime just bicycles alone so I, I got a, another question for you then what what has kept you or why haven't you um, or maybe you have considered this ever lived living in Europe
1: oh man that's a dream you know and I say this to people a lot that you know life's too short to live in one place moving right. around is good. Uh, and I've been lucky. I've lived on the East Coast. I've lived in California, San Francisco, L.A., New Orleans a couple of times. And, and you know, I'd like to think that I'll live somewhere else again. But Did uh, you've
0: never lived in Europe? I mean, I've never. Uh, def-
1: uh, why oh, no, you? no, it depends on where you want to go. Right. You know, you can't go to the U.K. because, you, know, you, you know, you can't live there. I mean, you can spend 90 days there maybe, but then you got to go. But uh, there are countries that are trying to lure in people like Portugal, for instance. Mm. You go to Portugal and, you know, buy two acres for eight grand or something. <laughs> I mean, just you can just buy property there. But uh, I often think about Portugal and Spain. Love those two places, you know, the weather, the culture, the food. They're cheap, you know. Mm. Would I prefer to live in a big ball and loft in Berlin? Absolutely. But uh, you know that's 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 just too expensive, you know. Mm. Uh, Europe can be very expensive—Berlin, London, Paris, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe one of these days, uh, if the stars align, maybe you and I can travel Europe a little bit together. I think that'd be fun, especially with the experience that you've got. I'm I'm dying to go back to Europe myself. So, especially Northern <clears> Europe. <throat> I like I like the whole uh, Belgium, Netherlands, Denmark. Area,
1: yeah, yeah, agreed.
0: Especially with agreed. its uh, cycling history, it's for the, the spring classics and stuff like that, cycle cross and
1: stuff. So, yeah, I could live in Copenhagen. I love that city too. Mm. You know, I just really uh. read that the uh, the Tour de France is gonna we're gonna try to do it in late August. Yeah, late August and go into September. I hope it happens because usually it's in July. And I'm always working in July and touring and can't pay much attention. I would love to be able to have the Tour de France roll around, be at home and watch it every day. Just get up and watch it and then read about it when I'm not watching it. And then, you know, just, I was so into it in the Lance days and the Blue Train days. I was so into it, you know, buying the magazines and learning about all the writers and the teams. And, you know, it's exciting. I'd like to do that again. You know, and this is this, oh, this could be, be an upp- this could be an opportunity. Yeah,
0: it's it's a blast. Yeah, see, but you know, get boned up on the uh, kind of uh, the teams and the crew and, and who's doing what. You know, uh, I've been spending some time paying attention to uh, Education First, which is a a team. Um, they've been doing some great YouTube videos. Uh, they've got a very dynamic <sighs> squad there, and then uh, yeah, I don't know, Cantana's team and. There's, there's there's a Netflix special. Uh, oh, uh, all on one team. to spin it for the with the a lot of the Colombians and stuff on it. So I forget that. I'll send you that. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. There's some good stuff. And,
1: and we should check. You should check out that that uh, ESPN thing they did on Lance Armstrong. Right. Really yes. good. Yeah. yeah. Right after really he told good. me about that, and he
0: I, I caught something else that said that was really really good. So I'll make a point of watching that this week.
1: And you know what? I'm not saying it's really good because I like Lance or I'm trying to defend Lance. It's just really good TV. Mm. Um, you know, and the, and the, the, the debate is, you know, is it a good guy that did a bad thing or is it a bad guy who did some good things? Mm. IE live strong and, you know, cancer survivors and blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, or, you know, or is it a, you know, did he use that as a shield, you know, to do, you know, i'm a a fucking scoundrel over here but you know but you gotta like me because i've lived strong you know
0: yeah i like to think that he just kind of got wrapped up in his own head i don't think he's a bad guy i just think that uh you know his earlier you know his life as a as a kid and you know being raised by his mom and you know wanted to compete and be the best and i think just got the best of him. just got into him, you know
1: yeah you know but there's the lance that you know we're presented with. And then there's the real Lance. And and I thought, you know, I I listened to his podcast recently and on a podcast, there's no editing or maybe you can edit, but you know, you kind of hear somebody as they kind of are, Mm. you know, and uh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about him, but I've met him a few times. You know, he came to see tool when we were in Austin earlier this year and I chatted with him for a second, you know, it was loaded fucking loaded every time i've seen lance armstrong he's been drunk like uh, fucking legless you know yeah. Loaded star beer you know but uh, <laughs> but he's been nice to me you know he shakes my head and says hi you know but uh, yeah, there you go. Know. there it is um so. there's there's the cycling portion of our show huh.
0: Well, I think with that, um, we're going to round this one out and, uh, you know, we'll pick it up again another time and uh, we're going to get some guests on here and we'll talk about some other things uh, about the concert touring industry and what people in the industry are doing during the pandemic to keep busy. Um, Very excited
1: about some of the guests we have coming up, you know, not only because they're terribly interesting people, but they're entertaining you and I, you and I can sit back and, you know, take the pressure off of us and have them entertain us. You know? <laughs> right on. Good.
0: Cool. Well, good, I'm man. looking forward to it.
1: So. Enjoy the, Enjoy your evening and, and uh, well. enjoy your week and let's stay in touch and look forward to chatting again.
0: Absolutely, man. Thanks. And I'll All talk right, to you again soon. Peace. Peace out, bro. Bye. Bye.